And now before we get to the sermon, we have this very important video for you to watch. Pay attention. to tell you there's something wrong. You just happen to be violating Section 17B, Article 4. That's all that's wrong. How's that? You fellows must be strangers around here. I better straighten you out. Now, Section 17B, Article 4, states that street venom is not permitted anywhere in Mayberry. Now, you're just going to have to find another spot somewhere outside the town limit. Uh, what was that you said we was doing uh, on the street? Vending, selling. That's what you're doing, ain't it? No, that ain't what we're doing, are we, need? Of course not. Know what we're doing? We're playing stole. Now, I'm the storekeeper, see? And Neil here's the mama who's gonna buy the things off me. Right, Neil? Right. And later on, we're gonna play cops and robbers. So why don't you come on back later, and maybe we'll let you play, too. Now, look, you happen to be talking to the law. Don't you get smart-nosed with me. The law? Did you know he was the law, Matt? No, I didn't. For gosh sake. <laughs> Who do you suppose he is? Hey, you suppose he's wider? I reckon he's Marshal Dillon. Maybe he's a Lone Ranger. He's more like the Lone Ranger's horse, Silver. <laughs> I didn't recognize you without your hat. Oh, Silver! <laughs> now cut that out, cut it out! Now, I ain't kidding, you understand? We ain't kidding either, mister. We like this here spot and we're staying. So you get and leave us be. Yeah, get, or you rile us. You're gonna be sorry you ever started up with me. Get. You'll be sorry about this. I said get. <laughs> a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble. You just wait and see. Get. <laughs> I own silver, away. Just you wait and see. Just you wait and see. Poor Barney. Oh, what's Barney going to do? He knows what's right, and he knows what's wrong. Barney knows the law, and he, he does his best to uphold it, but those two guys are bigger, and they're tougher, and they're meaner than Barney. And so when push comes to shove, now Barney's the one that gets pushed. And Barney's the one that gets shoved. How is he supposed to stand firm in what he knows is right? How is Barney supposed to overcome? How is Barney supposed to conquer? We're looking at the seven churches in Revelation. Today we're looking at the church in Pergamum. And the church in Pergamum was kind of like Barney. They knew, the, they knew the truth. They knew what was right. They knew what was wrong. They knew what God expected of them. 
But their world, their society, their community, their culture, they didn't agree with them. And they were bigger, and they were tougher, and they were meaner than the Christians there in Pergamum. Could they stand firm in what they knew was right, or would they be like Barney? Would they turn and run? We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. <coughs> if you get your Bibles with you, I ask you to turn there. If you've got a phone or a PD or a, 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 a tablet or something that you can get on there, or if you want to use those Bibles in the pews in front of you, we're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. It's page 129 in those Bibles. Now, Pergamum. You've probably not heard of Pergamum. Pergamum was the oldest city in Asia. And it was Rome's kind of home away from home in Asia. It was the capital of Rome in Asia. It was a beautiful city. Pergamum was a wealthy city. There was a little over 100,000 people in it. Pergamum had a library that was second only to the great library in Alexandria. Other than Alexandria, Pergamum had the greatest library in the ancient world. And so it was a place where ideas were discussed as books, as, as the scrolls came in from all over the world. Pergamum was a place where ideas were discussed. Pergamum was also a center for other religions. Pergamum was a center for paganism. They had temples to just about every god you can imagine. In Pergamum, there was a temple to the king of the gods, to Zeus. There was the temple to Zeus. There was also a temple like Smyrna that we saw last week, there was also a temple to the emperor because the emperor insisted on being worshipped as a god. Emperor Domitian. And so there was a temple to Domitian there. Domitian's symbol in his temple was that of a bull. Big, powerful bull. There was also a temple in Pergamum to the god Asclepius. And you may not know the name Asclepius, but you would recognize his symbol Asclepius' symbol was a rod with a snake wrapped around it, and it's the symbol that we continue to use today for doctors. And Asclepius was the Savior God. He was the God of healing. And so there were all of these temples in, in Pergamum for different gods to worship, all of these pagan gods to worship. In addition to all that, being the capital of Rome in Asia, there was a Roman proconsul, a resident proconsul in Pergamum who had the authority to carry out sentences of capital punishment. And it was said that he ruled by the power of the sword. So there in Pergamum, we have different voices of learning coming into the city through the library. We have different gods being worshipped through the paganism in the city. And we have the power of the sword over the people in the city. What would Jesus say to address people with that kind of culture, with that kind of opposition to the message of the Gospel? We start there in verse 12. And He says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of Him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching 
of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The first week, we looked at the church in Ephesus. And if you remember, Jesus told the church in Ephesus, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And so the message to the church in Ephesus was, love comes first. Last week we looked at the church in Smyrna, and Jesus has no rebuke for them. He has nothing to say against them, but this was a church going through persecution and very, very difficult times. And what Jesus shows them in His letter to the church in Smyrna is, suffering does not equal punishment. Instead, He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer, but remain faithful even unto death. We come to the letter to Pergamum. And the letter to Pergamum is all about truth. It is about God's truth. His unchanging, His perfect, and His eternal truth. And the warning to the church, the warning to that church is frightening, and it is firm. He says, therefore, repent. And that is not a suggestion. <laughs> that is a command. You must repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them, war against those that despise my truth, those that would compromise my truth. I will come and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The greatest danger to the church is the compromise of God's truth. And so the warning to Pergamum, the warning to us, to those who have ears to hear, is against compromise. And Jesus warns us of the danger of compromising the truth with the world around us. Now, Jesus makes no bones about this and about Pergamum. He says, you live where Satan dwells. You live where Satan's throne is. Two times He reminds them, you live where Satan lives. Their world was turned against them. They had, they had no power in their community. They had no position. They were in trouble. I've mentioned before, Emperor Domitian, the, the emperor at the time this was written, he had set, it about, he'd set about his goal to be even worse than Nero. Domitian insisted that he be worshipped as a god. And part of his worship, every financial transaction that you had in that world Every financial transaction you had, whatever you bought, whatever you sold, you had to pay a tithe or a percentage of that had to go to Domitian as a payment of worship. So you could not buy or sell anything without worshiping Domitian. Part of your money had to go towards Domitian. Now, it would have been real easy for the Christians in Pergamum to say, well, that's just the way it is. <laughs> Not much we can do about it. That's, 
that's just the way it is. And you know, what the, what's the harm of a little money going towards Domitian? You know, what's the harm of a little idol worship? What's the harm of a little immorality? I mean, after all, we're saved by grace, right? But the church had to take a stand. It had to take a stand for the truth. We still have to take a stand for the truth today. I like that episode of Andy Griffith. It's called Lawman Barney is the episode. A little later in the episode, Andy goes back to the, the guys that are vending, that are out selling on the side of the, of the road. And Andy talks to them. And he, he asks, says, well, didn't, didn't a deputy come by? And he says, yeah, we ran him off. And he goes, oh, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done that. That's, that's fearless five. That's, he, he's psychotic. And he, Andy starts telling him about how tough and mean Barney is. And they said, this is, he's playing with you. This is an act. He comes across and he tries to act all timid and scared. And then he's going to lay the hammer down on you. He's sadistic. And so when Barney comes back a second time, the guys pack up and they take off right away. Long as Andy's got Barney's back, Barney is fierce. Barney is forceful. Barney has teeth. Think about our society. And I think about the church in our society today. We've, we've always had Andy to back us up, haven't we? We've always had the law on our side backing us up, giving us the courage to stand, giving us the right to stand. After all, the Constitution backs us up, right? What happens if that's gone? I, I get a lot of emails and I read a lot of posts online from some wonderful and well-meaning Christians that seem afraid of what's going to happen if we lose the protection that we have from our government, from our nation. But you know, the church in Pergamum, the church in Pergamum did not have the benefit of being a church in a Christian nation, did it? And it, it survived. It thrived right there. In fact, the greatest periods of growth in the history of the church do not take place in Christian nations. Look at China where it is illegal to be a church. It is illegal to have a church. And yet, something like a million new believers come to Christ every 55 days, if I remember correctly. You look at those horrible beheadings that we saw ISIS beheading those Coptic Christians in the Middle East. It's awful. And yet now we have reports of Muslims coming to Christ in the droves over there. Do you remember what Jesus told the church in Smyrna? Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. What's He telling us? What's He telling you? You see, compromise is born out of fear. Compromise is born out of fear. Fear of being viewed as wrong. Fear of standing alone. Fear of being prosecuted or persecuted or made fun of because of what you stand for and what you believe. In verse 13, he reminds them, you dwell where Satan's throne is. You dwell where Satan lives. Does, does that sound like a dangerous place to dwell? It does. You shouldn't necessarily expect agreement and for everybody to get along if you're dwelling where Satan lives lives. You know, Jesus said as much in the Gospels. Back in Matthew chapter 10, when He first sends the disciples out, Matthew 10 beginning in verse 16, He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and as innocent 
as doves. He says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, when they deliver, not if, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and your and father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It is nice that we can say we live in a Christian nation. It is wonderful that we can say that this nation was founded on Christian principles. That is an incredible blessing. But Christian nation or not, Jesus calls us to thrive. And when there's opposition, we thrive even more. Not to compromise. Not to compromise our truth. Not to compromise what we believe. Not to compromise with a world where Satan dwells. A couple years before, just a couple years before Jesus received the revelation, or before John received revelation, before Jesus gave him this vision. A couple years earlier, John wrote a letter called 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, John says, little children, he was really old at the time, and so he could call all of us little children. He said, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The world wants you to compromise with them. And too many churches and too many Christians are more than willing to compromise with the world. Why? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You know, the warning isn't just about compromising with the world. Jesus also warns of compromising the truth within the church. See, Pergamum was the, the Christians there. The church there wasn't just under pressure to compromise with society. There were compromises wanting to be made there within the church. He says in, in verse 14, he says, you have some there. You have some there where? Where is there? There is the church. You have some there in the church, he says, who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. You remember Balaam in the Old Testament? You guys remember your Old Testament, Balaam? Balaam's the guy who had a talking donkey, right? That wasn't Shrek, it was Balaam. He had a talking donkey. And, and everybody remembers the talking donkey, but the point of the story of Balaam is that Balaam compromised with Balak, he, he compromised, and his compromise led to the people of Israel, God's people, being cursed. He also goes on and says in verse 15, so also you have some, you have some in the church who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We've, the Nicolaitans are mentioned twice in the Bible, twice, and it's always in this chapter. It's mentioned to the church in Ephesus, and now it's mentioned here the second time. We don't know much about the Nicolaitans. They were part of a group that we call the Gnostics. They believed in having secret knowledge and they preached this secret knowledge that they had that everybody else didn't have. 
And they preached a different Gospel. They preached a different Jesus. They preached a different way of salvation. And Jesus says there are some in your church who hold to their teachings. You see, the truth wasn't just being compromised outside the church. The truth was slipping away inside the church. I want to remind you, this church, Kansas Christian Church, you and I, not the building, but the people, we are an independent Christian church. We are independent. That means there is no superintendent over us. There is no denomination over us. There is no other organization above us that tells us what to teach, what to preach, what to believe, and how to practice our faith. Now, some of you have come out of churches that have that. And some, some of those churches are wonderful. But some of you have seen the abuse that can come from churches that have someone over them telling them how to live and, and what to do. You've seen the problems. We don't have that. We have the Bible. We have the Bible. We have the Word of God. And we do our best to read it. We do our best to understand it. We do our best to live by it. The things that we see the church doing in the New Testament, we want to do those things. We want to be the kind of people that they were. And so we try to, to keep their practices. We try to do the things that they do instead of living just on, on our own traditions. We also have godly leadership. We have very godly leadership who will not compromise the truth. We had a lot of, had a lot of visitors last week. It was really nice. had a wonderful time talking to the visitors at the back door last week. One of the visitors came up to me and shook my hand, and then she leaned in and she said, it was good to hear biblical teaching again. She told me that. It's good to hear biblical teaching again. I thanked her, but I realized that was less a compliment on my sermon and more of a commentary on what she's used to hearing. I've told you guys before, I am a sermon junkie. I am a sermon junkie. Some of you, when you're downtime, you watch sports, right? You, you watching, everybody watching baseball right now? Football's coming up pretty soon, you know? You watch sports, some of you run, some of you do all kinds of fun things. I listen to sermons. I think it's weird that you watch sports, okay? I'm just going to tell you, I think it's weird that you spend that much time watching sports. I listen to people preach. I, I mean, it's what I do. I, I love sermons and, and I love to hear them. And I listen to people I like. I listen to people I, listen to people I don't like, too. And I hear a lot of sermons that are based on Scripture. I hear a lot of sermons like that compliment at the back door, Bible teaching. I hear a lot of sermons that are just ingrained in the Scriptures. But we also hear sermons where maybe the Bible is mentioned. I, I can tell you about sermons I've heard that were about a poem that the preacher read, or a, a song that the preacher heard, or whatever was just kind of going through the preacher's imagination that particular day. There's a lot of sermons out there that have no Bible at all. What are they standing on? If we're not standing on the truth of God, then, then what good is that poem? What good is that song? What good is that thought in your head? Now listen, I, I want you to know that that won't happen here. That will not happen here. But let me tell you what else won't happen here. We're not going to beat people up with the truth either. 
We're not going to beat this over people's heads and, and beat them up with the truth. We believe you can be right in your faith. We believe that you can be firm in your faith and still not be obnoxious about it. What you and I dare not forget is that while truth is vital to who we are and what we believe, truth does not come first. Our first reaction is always to love people. Even when they don't agree with us. Even when they don't agree with our interpretation or our view of the Scripture. Even when they just think this is a nice old book of stories. Our first instinct, our first reaction is going to be to love them. When Jesus wrote that letter to the church in Ephesus, the first letter we looked at, Jesus didn't say, I have this against you. You have abandoned the truth you had at first. What did He say? You have abandoned the love you had at first. It was love. When Paul wrote his letter to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 4, he describes what a mature church should look like. We've looked at that Scripture many times. But in Ephesians 4, he tells us what a mature church should look like. And in Ephesians 4.15, he says, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. If we can't do that, we should not speak. We can't speak the truth in love. We simply should not speak. And the reason for that the reason for that is also the reason why the greatest danger in the church is the compromise of God's truth. Because you see, when God gave us His truth, He gave us Himself. Back in the Gospel of John, also written by the same author, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is dealing with the crowds, with the Pharisees. He's dealing with people who were searching the Scriptures. They were searching the Word of God. And they were trying to find answers. They were trying to find laws. They were trying to find out what was right and what was wrong so that they could, so that they could know that they were right. That's what they wanted. They wanted to prove that they were right. And in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me so that you might have eternal life. This isn't just about rules. This isn't just about rules. This isn't just about right and wrong. This isn't something we can just beat over people's heads. First and foremost, this is about God. God has given us His truth so that we can know Him. Now to those who stand firm in that, to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, there are two promises given here in this letter. Two rewards promised to the one who overcomes, who doesn't compromise the truth. In verse 17, he says, I will give some, to, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. You remember the story of the hidden manna? Do you remember the manna? You know, the people of Israel had, had been in Egypt. And, and suddenly they were no longer there. They were out wandering in the wilderness. But you know, Egypt, Egypt had been oppressive. They had been slaves in Egypt. Egypt had been difficult. But in Egypt, they were also fed. 
They were taken care of by the, by the government and by the people, and they were fed and they were provided for. They lived well. But out in the desert, out in the wilderness, God fed them. He fed them of the hidden manna. The very presence of God fed them. There was intimacy in that. And he's telling the people of Pergamum, this government may turn against you. And it may not give you what you want. It may not give you what you need. You keep trusting in Me. Because I know you. And you know Me. Hold to My truth and I will provide for you. The other reward there in verse 17. He says, and I will give him, I will give the one who conquers a white stone with a new name written on it. That's a little weird. How many of you really want a white rock? You know, yeah, Jesus, give me a white rock. You know, it, don't concentrate on the rock. The rock has significance, but the real significance is I will give him a new name. We still do that with people, don't we? We give them, we give them new names. We give, when do we give people names? At weddings? What? At birth? We give someone a name. We give people a new name at weddings. And we give people a new name at adoptions. That's when you get a new name. Someone takes on a new name. God is promising them deep and intimate relationships with Him. He is promising them that they will get a new name. And you know, when someone gives you their name in that culture, and, and in many of the instances that we have today, that person has authority over you, right? You have authority over that person you gave a new name. You know, you have authority over that, over that child. And God is saying, I'm going to be here. I am going to be your authority. You respect that person. You honor them. God is worthy of that. And the reward goes to the one who conquers. Not the one who compromises. The reward goes to the one who conquers. Not the one who compromises. You and I have to be careful about the truth. Not just in knowing it, but in applying it. And we have to be most careful in applying it to our own lives. Do you see that warning there in verse 16? Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You remember verse 12? Jesus identifies Himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. You know what the thing about a two-edged sword is? A two-edged sword cuts both ways. It cuts both ways. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 there also, we read, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In your desire to know the Word of God, you will first find that the Word of God knows you. It knows you. Now, just because we need to wrap everything up, I want you to see how things shake out with Barney and those two rough guys on the edge of town. Take a look at this.
You fellas? I warned you before, now I'm warning you for the last time. You take your truck and you get out of here. This is a deputy sheriff talking. You get moving. Now. Do you see this badge? It says that I'm sworn to uphold the law. Now, that's what I mean to do, and you fellas better respect it. You understand? It's just as simple as that. You're both a lot bigger than I am, but this badge represents a lot of people. They're a lot bigger than either one of you. Now, are you gonna get moving? Nice work, Barn. Nice work. That's as fine a job of stalking as I've ever seen. I ask you to do something. Would you would you stand with me? And if you've got a Bible, if you've got your phone, if you've got a tablet, or if you want to just, just grab one of those Bibles in front of you, could you just hold it up with me? Just hold that Bible up. You see this Bible? This is the Word of God, and we have sworn to uphold it. Now that's what we mean to do, and you better respect it. It's just as simple as that. You might be bigger than us, but this represents someone who's a lot bigger than you. And as we live by it, do not abandon the love you had at first. That very simple understanding that there is a God who loves you, who forgives you, and who wants you to know Him, and He wants other people to know Him as well. Hold to that first love for the sake of the church, for the sake of Kansas, for the sake of our community, for the sake of the world, and hold to that truth. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, that You did not leave us ignorant of Your truth. You didn't want us to simply guess what pleases You and what it takes to follow You. We thank You that You gave us Your truth through Your Word. Father, there, there, are there have been times when, like Pergamum, we haven't held to Your truth as tightly as we should, and we ask Your forgiveness. And we ask for the strength of Your Spirit to, to enable us to stand firm, firm in our faith, courageous in our convictions. But above all, Lord, we realize that when You gave us Your truth, You gave us Yourself, and that the greatest expression of who You are is love. Let us never speak truth without speaking it in love. It is in love that our world, our friends, and our family will come to know the truth and will come to know You. And it is in the name of Jesus 
who came as the way, the truth, and the life that we pray. Amen.